Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark, episode 262, 262. Thursday, October the 6th, 2022. And we'll let Mr. Uh, Intro Outro do his job, Mark. I'm not going to cut in short this week because, well, we did pay money for this guy. (laughs) So we should make you. Get our money's worth. We should. He's about to finish. Maybe we should get him to do another one that only goes for 15 seconds or so um, and tell him to cut the band. Oh, there we go. He's finished. So I hope you're well, Mark. All is good here, north of the what, border. I'll tell you what, we had an interesting – you asked me how my day went and we had an interesting day today. Um, good day, although yesterday was even more interesting and betterer, Mark. It was betterer. <laughs> more betterer. Um, so early on in the week, Monday was a very – very looked like it was going to be a very quiet day, and it was the first here in Victoria, the first day of people t- going back to school. So typically, and I know you probably, most vet clinics have the same, when there's been school holidays and all the kids are back on that first Monday after the school holidays, vet clinics tend to be a bit quieter because the last thing people want to do is take their animal to the vet when they're getting back into the routine of doing the school run, etc. and got into work and we had, uh, I think, one one just routine surgery booked in and I think one consult um, booked in in that first morning block and that's about it, and only two or three in the afternoon, I thought. And I was, you know trying to be pretty chilled and I, and I was actually I thought oh well that's it I can nick off for a while maybe go home or whatever um, and just have a chill day and not pa- panic about things and then the phones hit <laughs> yes. and it's amazing it ended up being one of the busiest days for um, many weeks um, we had you know injured wildlife um, dropped off I think we had um, a uh, guinea pig that was trying desperately to die on us at had in in the oxygen tent that eventually did die by my needle um, because it wasn't going to survive. Um, but we tried to play with that one for a little bit, and another couple of surgeries um, that came in a, a a little bit of dragon that had been decided to take a leap from a decent height and landed awkwardly on the side of a chair and couldn't use its hind legs. And yeah, it's amazing, isn't it, how things sort of can go from nothing to, to a bit manic at times and sometimes vice versa when you have those days when there's a few cancellations as well. So, But but good cases and fun cases and it was one of those days when you have a bit of a buzz and you think, gee, this isn't a bad a bad job after all when, when things sort of go to plan even though they're a bit manic and, and you just enjoy things and, and the flow, everybody works together as a team and it, um, you have a good day. So, yeah, that's what's been happening, Mark, in this part of the world. Um, Brendan, do you think do you think that? I reckon that a lot of the – there used to be a lot of 
rules, a lot of guides, a lot of things that would happen. Like you said, the the post-school holiday lull as people caught their breath and and then things would fire up again once they uh, sort of got back into the routine. But I think whether it's COVID, whether other factors are at play, a lot of the old rules of veterinary medicine, um, uh, veterinary practice, they, they don't apply anymore, I reckon. And this is a classic example. You would, you would think that uh, you'd, you'd get a chance to just get a couple of things under your belt, but then it flares up into the busiest day you've had for weeks. So I reckon the rules are changing. I think it is a bit, well, it's a bit like climate change, isn't it, Mark? It's a bit more unpredictable. <laughs> Although I suppose it is predictable what might be happening with climate change. Um, so that's probably not the best analogy, <laughs> is it? <laughs> So, yes, I, I, I understand what you're saying there, Mark. Um, so what is the new norm? I don't know, Mark. I do not know. So, But it was a good day or two. I'm glad you had a good so, one. So there you go. And quickly before we jump into some news stories, just to say thank you to one of our sponsors, Oxbow Animal Health, which is the Australian distributor of critical care product, which we all love and use, as well as another range of other products and supplements, etc., for us small mammals and, and other species. So um, thanks to Jen and the team. And we hey, have a Brendan. link to their mark on our website, vetgurus.com. Yes, hey, I was going to say that link to their website, um, not only do they have outstanding products, which we use every day in exotic animal practice, but... They also have excellent information. There's a number of handouts that we, you know, that I had written in previous iterations um, that are just much more succinct and and uh, information driven, evidence driven um, on their website. I, I find not only the resources of their products, but the information there is just so useful. So, yep, shout out to Jen and her team for for uh, um, yes, very yeah. very good website, OxbowAustralia.com, I think it's their website. So yeah, head over there and um, have a poke around and look at those um, articles and they're. Um, very professional, very, very, um, gee, very. I'm just looking at it now. Very clean website and um, lots of pics of little small fairies and, and a whole series of videos as well. I see, Mark. Yeah, um, yeah. Have they been up there for a while? No, um, I don't. I've looks like Micah there um, in a few of those videos. How to transition your animal to to um, Oxbow, the importance of feeding, getting to know different types of hay. And, um, yeah, that's um, excellent. Excellent, Mark. So, yes, I can't um, speak highly enough of it. Gee, I tell you what, they have got a few videos. I'm scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. <laughs> um, a lot of them about some of their products, but um, also about general things like how to feed hay and enrichment um, processes for um, um, rabbits, etc. Yes, very good. Um, and if you want to send an email to us, vetgurus at gmail.com, and we'll talk a bit about emails in our main topic this week as well, Mark. But first, I want to jump into my new story, Mark, um, and it's about do um, spiders dream? <laughs> do spiders dream of electric sheep, Mark? Um, that's a bit of a, a nerdy reference there. Spiders snooze just like humans and may even dream, a study says. 
and researchers filmed more than 30 baby jumping spiders as they slept using infrared cameras so as not to bother them, Mark. And they displayed so thoughtful. They displayed periodic bouts of retinal movements coupled with limb twitching and leg curling. Well, I certainly do that when I'm dreaming, so perhaps they are. And they suggested it's potentially akin to REM sleep in humans, Mark. So are they drawing a little bit of a... Um, Longer bow? A, a longer bow or not, Mark. I'm just flicking through. There's a couple of other bits here that they were talking about. There's a study done by Daniela Rusler, Rosler, an evolutionary biologist, biologist in Germany, Mark, and published in, um, oh, my God, it's been cut off there, what the journal was. So they studied the eight particular species of jumping spider that suspends itself upside down. Um, and they, um, this particular species, Mark, do have movable retinas where they change their gaze when they hunt. And that's where they thought that they were perhaps having, you know, REM-type sleep um, when they were sleeping because they saw those sort of retinas, retinas moving around and, and the movements looked a lot like REM sleep in other species there, Mark. So what do they dream of is the obvious question, Mark. <laughs> do they dream of, um, you know, little, little moths or ants or catching something? Or is this um, as anthropomorphizing about sleep, Mark. What's your thoughts? Look, I, I suspect that um, that there's an element of oh, maybe I'm just being aspirational and hopeful, but um, I, I, I love my jumping spiders and, um, and they are so easy to anthropomorphize too. There's, you know, they, they behave in some ways like we would expect um, tiny people with eight legs to behave. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that people immediately jump to analogies with human behaviour. But I just wish it was true, Brendan. I hope they dream and I hope they have happy dreams. Um, and um, and certainly at this stage, the, the geez, I can't imagine. Maybe it's a sort of like uh, embryonic uh, REM. It's a, it's a, you know, simple neuronal pathway exercising a period of time where it's it's quiet and, and uh, inactive and, and this is something that was born in that sort of situation has become more complex as organisms have become more complex. I don't know. I'll be interested to see where they take it. Like many of our news articles, I I see them as... Um, as this is the first step in a whole bunch of, um, like, what's going to happen next? Yes. And, again, you know, who thinks up the thought of <laughs> let's, let's throw some infrared um, <laughs> cameras on sleeping spiders? Maybe it was a slow day at the research office. <laughs> they decided let's, let's do something a little bit different. Yes, who knows? It is, oh, that, that's probably one of the interesting things, I reckon. I reckon they probably opinion. fell asleep, Mark, at work, right, in the, <laughs> in the research office, and then they thought, hey, I've got an idea. I've just had this amazing dream. Does spiders dream? <laughs> <laughs> yep, so I, I, would, I wouldn't be surprised you're right. We'll, we'll have to do some extra research. Yes. So what have you got, Mark? Uh, my one is um, sort of more. Can you hear me? Can you hear me, Brandon? Yes, I can Am hear I you with mate. you. Fire away. Oh, good. 
Yes. Uh, my one's a little bit more um, uh, historical. Um, uh, I was telling you that um, the scientist, the assistant director of um, the museum who made this discovery um, is someone that I've followed on Twitter for quite a few years and, uh, and know that Jack has taken up a position in um, the Cambridge University Museum of Zoology, and um, and he's uncovered uh, a century-old platypus and echidna specimens, um, which at the time were, um, you know, were, were world-shattering. They represented the the um, specimens were collected by a British scientist, William Caldwell, who visited Australia 150 years ago. Um, the specimens were of echidna and platypus at a variety of stages of development, but most critically uh, uh, demonstrated the eggs of the animals in um, collected samples. Um, and this was a, was seen as uh, earth-shattering because, first of all, it seemed to support uh, the theory of evolution, which really wasn't in vogue 150 years ago and so went against the, the current sort of thought patterns. Um, and so the, the specimens were uh, outstanding in that fashion, but it be, was even more important because um, while many uh, people in Australia had asserted that these animals laid eggs, um, this is the first time an actual you know, member of the university uh, with substantial financial backing from Cambridge, the Royal Society and the British government um, went out, found these things um, and headed back and announced. Um, so it was literally one of their own rather than um, Aboriginal uh, information or um, some other source. It was one of their own that that made it very difficult to discount. So, so these specimens really set the scene for uh, a quantum change in the um, the attitude to uh, mammals that they can actually lay eggs and and uh, and reproduce un unlike any other mammals. They're pretty outstanding specimens, don't you think, Brendan? Absolutely, Mark. So this book that Jack is writing or has written, is it, is it published, Mark, yet? Or is yeah, it still... I don't think it is published yet, no. Okay. Um, and do you know the title of it or not? Um, uh, it was in the article. Uh, oh, yeah, Platypus Matters, I found yes, it. The Extraordinary yeah. Story of Australian Mammals yeah. is released this month. There we go. So we'll have to keep a bit of a, a lookout for that. So, Yes. Yes, it was certainly shocked um, the establishment, didn't it, and the naturalists in 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 the UK when they they rolled up with this weird animal. <laughs> the Animals. Thing, yes. The other thing that's fascinating about it, Brendan, is that um, you know there were publications at the time about these things, but the specimens themselves uh, they were almost lost. That no one. You know, they'd they had been. I don't even know that they were appropriately catalogued. Um, they the natural history the there was not a natural history collection in the world that had a comprehensive catalogue of everything in it. Yeah, the the specimens were not catalogued, and he was suspicious that he would find the specimens in the museum store, um, and that just fascinates me that. Um, you know, such significant specimens are sitting in a... It sort of reminds me of that Indiana Jones 
scene with the the uh, covenant of the ark being just locked up in a box and put in a big big um, warehouse and waiting for someone to do research or whatever on it. Many of these museums must be just like that. Yes. And they, well, you hear reports fairly frequently, don't you, of these, well, reasonably frequently, <laughs> maybe once a year, of these <laughs> museums going into their archives and the basements, etc., and 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 dusting off some old boxes and finding something. Gee, I didn't know we had that there. And that's a, we need to um, get that out on display or, or do a study on it, yes. Very interesting, Mark. Um, now, let's jump in. Ah, gee, this news story is a bit of a... Our main topic is a bit of a tricky one, isn't it? And um, we're taking <laughs> an email from um, one of our listeners, um, regular, listener, correspondent. regular correspondent, our international correspondent, we are now calling Nick, <laughs> hi Nick, um, about, gee, I'll, I'll read out his email anyway, Mark, and I'm going to quiz you on this one because it's a bit of a, a curly one, Mark, and I don't know whether we'll be able to answer his question or questions so nick says i know we've talked about thinning of the salomic body wall with birds and reptiles that experience chronic reproductive activity question mark hyperestrogenism i've recently been asked to provide some references on this topic and to my my knowledge and literature search i wasn't able to find anything where this has been published aside from spears avian medicine and surgery where it is an anecdotal report. Do you happen to have any references for this? And also, he says, my colleague is doing a lecture on perineal hernias and their repair, and we were talking about this interest in hernias, in, in quotation marks, situation with birds and reptiles. She was possibly going to include it as a fun tidbit in her in her um, talk or their lecture. Thanks, Nick. So... Well, as I said during our prep for this podcast, Mark, I got nothing. (laughs) But we'll expand a little bit on that. And um, do you want to tackle the first comment about um, thinning of salomic body with um, wall with birds and reptiles? And I do want to talk about it because it's a thing that, particularly with some Australian species of birds, I see quite regularly. And so the the and and I have to agree with Nick. Nick has done the hard work, and I've done a little bit of a, a follow up to see if I could find anything in the literature to to back what I'm about to say, um, and I can't. So so this is once again one of um, I don't even know that I can call it my, but this is my explanation. Maybe not my hypothesis. Um, we would regularly see birds that uh, captive birds that. Um, that have ongoing reproductive activity, particularly galahs, uh, but many of the other species of cockatoos and and some other species. Um, and what those birds, what we see happen in those birds is that um, because they are stuck in that constant production of, of eggs, they're in a... Uh, a reproductive situation where they have high circulating levels of estrogen, a series of effects happen as a consequence of that high circulating level of estrogen. That constellation of events includes, in my opinion, um, 
the the um, an increase in body fat. So particularly uh, the organs inside the body enlarge and there's an increased deposition of fat in the liver and various other locations. The second thing is that the muscle wall of the body, the coelomic wall, um, is weakened. We know that estrogen is a um, is a hormone that has uh, predominantly uh, catabolic effects. It tends to um, lessen the development of muscle in the body. And so persistently high levels are likely to weaken those muscles. Um, and uh, the third effect is that um, the reproductive tract enlarges and will often have um, some persistent uh, uh, follicular activity, maybe even follicular stasis, depending on the species. And that combination of effects, the thinned, weakened muscle wall, the, the increase in abdominal fat and uh, abdom the size of the abdominal viscera, particularly the liver and the reproductive tract, and the straining if there is any uh, mass in the cloaca um, often leads to herniation. That combination of factors will lead to a tear in the muscle wall, often very close to those uh, pins, the pelvic bones, um, the ischium, I think it's called, and the tear will then allow abdominal viscera to overflow into the subcutaneous space. And that can be uh, intestine, it can be uh, reproductive tract, um, it can even be folds from the cloaca. Um, and so we definitely see this in avian practice, um, but um, but I am I'm disappointed to, be, to have to say to Nick that um, while I've espoused this uh, particular constellation of effects of high levels of estrogen to many, many clients um, and assumed that it was um, taken for granted that, um, you know, someone had done the research and showed that to be the case. I, I don't know that it is in the literature. So um, yes. we might need to um, uh, get someone on the, on you know, as we talk about many of the questions associated with avian and exotic patients, they haven't been uh, properly studied and elucidated. We need someone to get on the case with this one, Brendan. Yes, and I didn't get a chance to look up that anecdotal reference in Spears' book as well, Mark. I, don't, I presume you didn't either, so I'd be interested to have a look at that and who, what the comments were on that. So you could always perhaps send us that reference, Nick. And let us know. So we can't really help you too much <laughs> about that. But I, I, the the other comment that we'd sort of chatted about before we were on air, Mark, is that it 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 sort of stresses the point that just because it it's an unusual and exotic pet that we shouldn't get back to basics with things, and and we tend to get a little bit blinkered, don't we, with all sorts of things in our everyday life not just our professional life and and we think that it must be a weird and wonderful exotics thing but um you know there's lots of things to discover out there isn't there especially in the unusual exotic pet world and if you have um an animal a reptile or a bird or even the small mammals that have thinning of skin and then we need to start thinking both lat laterally but also getting back to basics and thinking what sort of systemic effects can be causing it if you sort of hinted at um just just then with um 
with um, causing that thinning there, Mark, and because we tend to forget, you know, that that maybe just because it isn't reported in the literature it certainly doesn't mean it it um, it doesn't exist. Um, and so there is an, a, keep, an awful lot keep of looking. Um, yes, yeah. There's an awful lot of um, uh, what we think of as clinical truths that um, that are taken for granted, uh, you know, from from a very minimal literature base. There's one final thing I'd say about this, Brendan, um, and it's a, a a clinical consequence, I suppose. One of the things that I've found. Um, there's been a number of times, particularly with those cockatoos, where we might uh, uh, spay them because they have enlarged reproductive tracts, um, and then we might attempt to... These are the ones that have herniated. Then we might attempt to repair the hernia. Um, I have found that, um, that that is often, particularly if it's done very quickly it's often a frustrating experience because um because i think those muscle walls are weakened and when you find the edges of them and put them back together and sew them closed or even if you find um you've got some, there's been a couple of cases where we've inserted those polypropylene mesh uh um implants um but what i find is wherever you have the edge of that whether it's the suture line or the mesh um, the muscles seem to be weakened and if the birds strain at all you'll end up with a new hernia at a new location and so uh, considering um, the use of uh, um, implants uh, to uh, suppress the secretion of estrogen um, from the ovary even after a, a um, uh, of a duct removal, um, it's good to wait for a little while to see if that uh, abdominal wall can um, strengthen up so that if you do sew it closed, those sutures might hold. Great points as usual, Mark. And as I said, I've got nothing <laughs> for for this topic apart from um, your, your comments and a couple of my basic very basic general comments there so i well, think I've with got... that Mark, we're going to get out of here um okay did you have one final comment i did uh, i've just had one much. question for you um uh we definitely see it in uh glass and um uh, sulfur crested cockatoos occasionally in cockatiels sometimes in budgies have, uh, i can't tell you though i've ever seen a hernia in a bearded dragon have you seen anything like that brendan hernia in bearded dragons uh no Although I did have a bearded dragon with a swelling on its lateral abdomen, salamic region, two weeks ago that I thought was a herniated follicle mark um, because ah. it was exactly the same size as a, as a follicle. I um, did a little ultrasound on it and aspirated a tiny bit of viscid clear fluid and I thought, this is a follicle, and this was a a female beardy, obviously, that had had follicular stasis previously. And I thought, is it just, and it was the exact size of a follicle. And I thought, it's a mature sort of follicle. And I thought, this is um, this is a weird one. Maybe it has herniated through the salamic um, body wall to the lateral, you know, um, just under the yeah. skin there. And took it to surgery and, uh, no, it wasn't. 
<laughs> it was a, a weird sort of cystic mass that was just purely subcutaneous. It was no attachment to the skin at all. It was between the the body wall and the and the body wall was intact, and the and the skin it was rapidly growing because the only one he noticed very, very astute owner, they only noticed it you know with um, um, suddenly. Um, so it was a, a really weird one. Um, so yeah, and we did send it off for pathology, but off the top of my head, I can't can't remember what it came back as. It came back as some weird benign cystic mass. So yeah. So the answer is long winded answer is no. <laughs> I haven't seen any hernias in the Vita dragons, and I think with that we're going to get out of here, and we will talk to you all next week. And don't forget to send us an email like Nick did to vetgurus at gmail dot com, and we'll talk to you all next week. to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time we'll be right back.